0: hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of doable discipleship the show designed to deepen your faith in god or as we like to say the show that helps you grow you've been tracking with us we've been going through this is our story it's a story a study through the first four chapters of genesis there is so much there today we are on genesis chapter three i'm gonna be honest things take a turn things take a turn but hey Within that turn, there is just a complete lightning rod of hope. Um, so without giving too much away uh, from the study, we're going to get into chapter three. Again, as we've said before, this is a study. So we encourage you to go through this study uh, with your small group. You can find it at saddleback.com slash watch. It's up on the watch page. It's on demand. Don't just keep the goodness to you. Share it with your small group as well. So we're gonna get into chapter three right now. Let's do it. In Eden, we see so much beauty and goodness. Adam and Eve are established together in marriage and they are ruling together with God. This is the world as it should be, the world that we long for. They're living the ideal life and have the freedom to fully live in community with God. They get to work and watch over all of creation with God and it's their job. Goodness is flowing. Adam and Eve are living into their purpose and are shame free. This is life in high definition, but something happens. It doesn't take long to figure out that our current reality doesn't look or feel anything like Adam and Eve in the last chapter. Something has changed the course of history and also our experience in the world.
1: The chapter opens up with this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent says in verse five, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At this they both took the fruit and ate. And sin entered the world polluting what God created and called good and all this tells us something very important about who we are as humans we want to be the authority now at first glance this doesn't seem so bad I mean the serpent offers Eve a way to be like God isn't that what is supposed to happen well not quite Yes, we are created in the image of God. We explored this idea in the last two sessions. But the serpent offers actually what God offers, but in a radically different way. He offers them reigning and ruling and significance, but by their power and authority instead of God's. Do you see the difference? He tells them to take what God has already given. It all comes down to power. Freedom and the power that comes with it are good things that are given to us by God. So you see, what the serpent offers is a distorted sense of ruling. And this is what sin does. It takes good things given by God and it twists them. It makes us feel like things can be better utilized under our control and for our purposes than under God's control and for His purposes. So the question is, What are you going to do with the freedom and power that God has blessed you with? Are you going to use it for your own personal gain? Or are you going to partner with God to accomplish his purposes on this earth? For me, I want to use the freedom and power God gave me to accomplish his purposes. Now, let's move on. Just a warning. Things keep moving downhill from here. Right, right, we'll pick up at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now remember, the snake had just told the woman that if they eat of this fruit, their eyes will be opened and they will be like God. Their desire to be the authority instead of God's caused them to go the route of the serpent. Now the serpent was right about one thing, their eyes would be opened. But what they would see when their eyes were opened was really different, I'm sure, than what they had hoped. Here's what happened, verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their opened eyes didn't suddenly reveal humanity in all of their strength. No, they they see themselves as they are apart from God. Naked, shameful, and helpless. See, this passage is telling us an important reality about being human. And it's this, that finding myself never works. Do you remember how Genesis chapter 2 ended? when all was right and humanity was in right relationship with their creator, it says man and woman were naked and felt no shame. This means they could be fully vulnerable, authentic, open-eyed with each other when they were focused on God and God's mission for the world. But notice, as soon as they turn their eyes away from God and onto themselves, all of that beautiful connectedness, a healthy love of the self and of the other is just completely destroyed. See, the story is telling us that we humans live best when we are seeking first after God and his ways. And on the flip side, when we chase after ourselves, make our own appetites and desires or problems the center of everything, we're always gonna come up short. Now again, there's a lot of talk in this world today, isn't there? Just follow your heart or just do you. You just need to find yourself, then you'll be truly happy. All this cultural advice totally misses the truth of this part of the story. Look, self-care and knowing yourself is is super important. But when we chase after ourselves, when we grab for more power to carry out our own desires, the end result is that we'll be naked and ashamed. See, I learned that self-focus is like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It makes you thirstier and it poisons you in the process. This passage is telling us that we actually find ourselves only when we go to Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's there that we drink of the living water. So next time, when I'm lost or looking for direction, I need to look to God before looking in the mirror. So let's keep going in the story. Verse eight, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you? That you were naked have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from busted now look at how this story perfectly holds up a mirror to who we are as people what was Adam's response the woman you put here with me she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it so God turns to the woman and says what is this you have done her response It's not, I'm so sorry I did this. Nope. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, here's who we are. Under tension, we protect ourselves and turn on each other. Look, we don't care if it's our brother, our kids, our spouse, heck, even our family dog. We will blame whoever we can to get the pressure off of us. Now, though this is laughable, it is actually a really destructive force, right? It tears us apart individually and also socially. The wounds caused by this knee-jerk response is probably something we feel on a regular basis. Think about it, right? Political elections are won by blaming the other side for everything wrong. Racism and bigotry and generational divides are all about blaming them for all the bad stuff in the world it's all their fault isn't it now more personally as pastor Rick likes to remind us hurt people hurt people someone hurts you so then you hurt someone else and then they hurt someone else and see when no one owns up to it the cycle of wounding and blaming just continues on and on and on now thankfully We have a savior that took the responsibility for all the wrongs of the world, wrongs that weren't even his fault. He took on the culpability of the wrong and thus the responsibility to make it right. Now, if Jesus took on responsibility for something he didn't even do wrong, what am I supposed to do as his follower? Well, it it begins by being honest. I need to stop blaming others. I need to be honest. With my mistakes. Believe it or not, God is not angry when we're honest with our mistakes. That's actually when he does his best work. When you take responsibility for when you've tried to go your own way, you actually break some chains of evil in this world. You break that cycle of wounding and blaming when you actually own up to it. And even a step further, when you confess your sins to one another as James 5:16 tells us to do we actually show other humans that there is a different way who'd have thought that confessing that taking responsibility for our actions and being honest about it it's actually a simple way of fighting evil in this world pretty cool try this at the end of your day today Think through one mistake you've made this week and then apologize to God about it. I'm telling you, if you do that, the next time that that weakness shows up and actually hurts somebody else, you will have a way better chance of just apologizing to them, not falling back into the pattern of blame. Now, see, these are small ways we get to push back the consequences of sin and evil you know, Live like we were back in the garden. Now, let's look at this chapter and see what it has to tell us about how this world works. Let's start with the kind of elephant in the room, actually the snake, right? Genesis 1 and 2 is all about a perfect world that God is creating and forming. But what's up with this snake? Well, there's a reality in this world, and it's that there's an adversary at work. Chapter 3 starts by introducing a very important and strange character. Now, the serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Nothing about where this serpent came from, nothing about why it's here, nothing about how this creature has the capability to speak. We don't have time to dig into these questions, as intriguing as they may be. But let's bottom line this. There's an adversary at work in this world often called the Satan or the devil. Now, Satan is simply the Hebrew word for adversary, which is very important. See, we often think of Satan as the proper name of this evil being, but in fact, it's more of a descriptor. The authors always just call this being the Satan, the adversary, as if this being doesn't even deserve a name. Now, there's a reason that this being is called the adversary, because That is exactly what it does. Sometimes we think of this world as one where there are two contrasting but equal powers, the great war of good and evil. This is believed in some other religions, but it's not actually the story of the Bible. No, in the Bible, there is God in charge of all, above all, creator of all. And among God's creatures, some natural, some supernatural, There's some that have sought to stand against what God is for. Now, this force of evil headed up by this personal being identified as the adversary or accuser is not equal with God. Instead, this being seeks to tear down whatever God builds, to speak lies into God's truth, to undo the good work that God does. If God is about bringing creation and order. The evil one is about bringing disorder, decreation, right, destruction. And how does the adversary do this? Well, think about it. When the Satan wanted to destroy Eve, he didn't hit her with a stick, but with an idea, with a false idea that would destroy her and everything she loves. The evil one's primary weapon Here's what the Bible says about it. When the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So how do I fight against the adversary and his primary strategy? I need to test my thoughts against God's truth. See, I need to hold on to what is true and throw away what is not. And think of this series as a great exercise on doing exactly that, coming to his word and letting it shape how we think. Now before Eve took the fruit, she took the idea that Satan gave her, and humanity fell. See, when God steps onto the scene, he has some things to say, which leads us to our second point. Sin has consequences. Now, chapter 3 goes in-depth to describe the results of a world where people go their own way instead of God's. It's a picture of how sin distorts how we as humans use the power and freedom he gave us. Commonly called the curses, these are statements made by God, descriptors of what the world is like after sin. And it's really meant to be in a sharp contrast to the beauty of chapters 1 and 2. God is not one that delights in punishing humanity. No, God calls us into life with him and rejoices when we live to the fullest. But God is clear about what happens when we choose our own direction. And he lays out three clear consequences for humans. Let's break them down and see what clarity they shed on why today's world is the way it is and what we can do about it. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. We'll see so to consequence one for us is that sin makes life painful. If you've ever been present when a child is being born, gosh, it is such a mix of joy and pain, perfectly representative of life outside of Eden. I remember thinking when my son was born, wow, what should be the most joyful occasion, a new life, is framed by heart monitors and doctors and masks and fear and pain and difficulty, right? This first moment of a child's life is a clear picture of the rest of it. Life is a mixture of joy and pain. So what do I do about this? Well, like, like pain in my body, pain reminds me that something is wrong that needs to be made right that this world needs a savior, and so do I. Now, second, Eve is told, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This leads us to the second consequence, which is that sin distorts how we use power. Let's get some clarity here. This is not God describing things as they ought to be, but rather the consequences of going our own way us corrupt people will corrupt how we use power. And God is saying that there will be distorted hierarchies of power, right? Abuse of power, people using power to hold control and desire and influence and ownership over others. Look at the world around us. The Bible is kind of hitting the nail on the head, right? We live in a world where there's a constant battle, between nations, between majority and minority cultures, between races, between male and female, between wife and husband, between rich and poor. The Bible says all of this is because we want to go about life our own way. And the reality of this passage is that outside of Eden, these power plays will continue. Now, thankfully for us, we have a savior and Jesus, that showed us a different way, who didn't use power the way we do, but instead sacrificed himself. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. And this is why Paul later on tells husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, Ephesians 5:21. And Jesus' way is not the world's way. So what does this mean for me? I must use power the way Jesus does, to serve. And third, the consequence given to Adam. To Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. See, consequence three is that sin makes survival a struggle. Remember from Genesis 2 how the world needs a gardener. Well, this is still true, but it comes at a cost. There are thorns and thistles that poke and stab, and where life and survival were a given before, it's actually not a guarantee now. So what does that mean for you? Well, remember how we talked about how work was a good thing in the last session? You may have actually rolled your eyes and and sighed at that part because you are experiencing work outside of Eden. And I'm sure you have those moments or those days where you come home from work feeling fulfilled and rejuvenated, almost like you've done what God has called you to do let's be honest most of our days we come home with sore backs from sitting in traffic right feeling anxious about that meeting coming up feeling like we're just holding on to the job maybe so we can help provide for our families or just to get by yeah that's that's life outside of eden what do i do with this well jesus taught that god takes care of the survival of the birds and he, he dresses flowers like kings if he does that for birds and plants, he will much more care for our survival. And so I need to remember Jesus' words to his followers. I need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the other survival stuff will actually just be added. So even though this side of Eden, survival takes work, even though it's not the free, overflowing, creative thing that God meant it to be, God's kingdom still shows up through our efforts. And there will come a day when doing God's will will actually come without pain. Now, to be honest, that was a lot of bad news, right? This chapter kind of pulled back the curtains and tells us about the reality of who we are and what this world is like. But don't worry, we haven't yet talked about what this chapter tells us about who God is. And that is where the good news comes
0: in. We will see in our next two points how God immediately begins to restore this brokenness. God is good and he won't let sin steal what he's created. Make no mistake, though things are bad, redemption will rule the day. While Adam and Eve are hiding, God speaks. Verse nine says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? In their first interaction, after they rebelled against God, God asked a series of questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you have done? Now, why does he ask these questions? Obviously, God being all knowing, he knows the answers. He's not walking around with Google Maps looking for them and he's not asking because he's unsure. He's asking because he wants them to understand what they did. And in this, we see again another side of God's character. God confronts yet covers. We see that not only does God confront sin, he also covers sin. Now, why did God confront sin? Well, because he loves us and wants to reconcile what's broken. We see this in action when God confronts them. He confronts them in such a way that it makes them confess. This is so important because confession is a part of our healing. Adam responds in verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think about that for a second. Adam is hiding from God who is the source of life. Remember that bit about death? Well, this is that playing out in real time. This is the death that God was talking about, being separated from him. Where there was once freedom in life, now there is shame, hiding, and death. Now God asks another question. He asks in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? God knows that they ate from the tree. Their shame in being naked indicts them. But again, God is bringing them to a place of understanding. Now that they have this new knowledge, they must understand the fallout of their actions. Now the beautiful thing is that God does not just confront. He also covers. He's concerned with their right now. In verse 21, Genesis says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's not miss this. God does for them what they could not do with fig leaves for themselves. He sees them in their shame and moves to cover them. He covers them with a sacrifice. God sacrifices an animal and uses the skin to cover them. This is incredibly important because it's the first instance we see of a sacrifice in the Bible. And it's a foreshadow of the sacrifice Jesus will make to cover our sin. From here, God lays out the consequences of their choices. Did you catch that? God confronted their sin and covered them before he gave them consequences. What a loving God he is. He wants to confront your sin to restore you, but he also wants to take care of your immediate needs in the process. Now let's continue on. Verse 22 and 23, Says, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Now, this is one of the more confusing parts of the Bible. What's going on here? Is God on his heels? Is he scared of what could be? Did the serpent outsmart God? In short, the answer to all three of these are no, no, and no. Now, God is punishing them, but He's not being punitive. He's actually setting them up to be restored. There is punishment, but this punishment has a purpose, and that purpose is to redeem them. When God clothes them in their shame, He was taking care of their right now. But this action, this is God taking care of their forever. This is actually God being gracious. Now, think about this. If they eat of the tree of life and live forever, they'll live forever in rebellion against God. They will eternally be condemned. He's protecting them from having to live for eternity in a fallen state far below what He intended for them. So, being that this is who God is, what does that mean for me? I need to listen to where God confronts my sin and remember He is caring for my needs in the process. So we see that even in God's consequences, He's gracious. But let's take that one step deeper. Let's check out verse 15. God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. This leads to our final point. God has a plan to redeem and restore everything. You ready for the good news? God has the last word and His word is good. Sin doesn't get to be in charge for long. Immediately, God states His plan for redemption of His people and His world. Yes, His creation is compromised. The world is rapidly devolving into death, but giving up is not what God does. It's as if God was saying, Oh, I'm not going anywhere. And not only am I not going anywhere, I'm not going to abandon my work. I'm also going to defeat evil in the process. He promises redemption through these interesting words, that the woman's offspring will crush the snake's head and the snake will strike the heel of this offspring. Okay, now let's break this down. So for clarity, the serpent is the picture of evil. The serpent's head is going to be crushed by some offspring of the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. Who is this offspring of the woman that will crush the serpent's head? Jesus. Jesus is the promised one that will come. And in Jesus, God defeats sin, death, and evil. Right here at the beginning of the story, we have the first picture of the gospel. That one will come that will crush the head of evil, even while this one's heel will be bitten by death in the process. How amazing is that? Even though evil gets a bite at his heel, Jesus defeats death and evil once and for all. Because of Jesus, redemption rules today, and now we can carry that redemption with us into the world. Isn't it amazing that God places such beautiful good news right in the middle of such a difficult chapter? That here at the start of rebellion, God promises one that will come to save us. Even though it cost him his life, death will not reign. And you know what's even better? God wasn't even finished. He is still doing this redeeming work to bring us to him. Today, I'm still a part of this story. No matter how hopeless things seem, God hasn't given up on this world and God hasn't given up on me. Genesis chapter three sets the tone for the world we now live in, a world in rebellion against God, a world choked by the chains of sin. And you know what? The rest of the Bible plays out in this setting, all of it up until the last two pages. So to close this session, let's skip through all the middle, jump from the
1: first two pages, which is the introduction of the world and of sin to the last page when sin is finally done away with, the very end of the story. And as you listen, note how much this passage means to you now, now that you spent some good time in these first chapters. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on either side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What an exciting time when all the consequences of rebelling against God will be made right. And when Eden is fully restored. That is the kind of God we serve.
2: If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit Saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to Saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at Saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.